Pastor Week to study this week, so I actually put together a PowerPoint. For those of you that are note takers, you will be uh, finding that there are notes to take, and uh, you can listen and write down what I have for you there, or you can completely ignore it if you're not a note taker. Um, but for me, to break things down into bullet points sometimes make me, hopefully, a little more concise and a little more, more clear on what I'm trying to say and kind of keeps me off my rabbit trails that I tend to run down every time I see a rabbit. I'm like, Pew! squirrel. So in 2 Thessalonians, which is where we've been studying, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, um, a review because it's been a week, and uh, before that it had been another week. And so um, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to a group of believers that is uh, actually prospering. They're growing in their faith. They're growing in their love for one another. And in chapter 1, Paul writes to them to express his thankfulness to the Lord for their faith because it's growing, it's abounding, it's overflowing in the midst of persecution and suffering. And what I mentioned to you a couple of times is that in the Thessalonian church, they were planted by Paul. And when they were planted, the first thing that happened was riots, accusations, and problems. It actually wasn't smooth at all. There was more problems than there was blessings if you look at it from the eyes of the world. But as they began, Paul imparted to them his testimony about Jesus. If you don't have anything else to give, if you feel like, well, I don't know if I can doctrinally explain the Trinity, well, join the rest of us. You know, it's, it's a difficult task. But if you don't feel like you can necessarily break down a passage of Scripture, it's okay. Jesus has not told us to go out and read the Bible to people. What he's told us is to go out and to be witnesses. And you cannot be a witness to something you have not seen. But you can be a witness to something that you have seen. And if Jesus has met with you and made an impact on your life, you can tell people about that. You don't have to tell people about other people's testimonies. Just tell them about what he's done in your life. And I tell you what, that'll cause you to think, what has he done in my life, and am I any different? And, and so you'll dig into that. And, and if there's not been any change, I would question whether or not you've really met with Jesus in the everyday walk of your life. But if there is change, even if in the slightest, and you know, well, I used to struggle with this, but Jesus has delivered me from that, and now I'm this way. You can just tell people that, and they can't argue with it because it's your testimony. Um, and then as they get to know you and get to see that you're just as messed up as they are and, and that you need a savior too, guess what? They can relate to that. Uh, some priest comes along or some pastor comes along and acts like they're perfect at everything and never lets anybody in to see that they're not. Nobody can relate to that. I can't. I never could. But when someone was real with me and explained to me that they have struggles too and that they're still growing, that, that makes a difference. But Paul had shared his life with these people for three weeks. And during that time, they experienced persecution as the church started. They said, you know, these guys that have gone out among the world and turned the world upside down, they've showed up in our town too, and they're messing up our stuff. They're calling things sin that we think are just totally fine. And they're, and they're causing people to no longer buy our stuff or do our, you know, whatever. They're, they're affecting our economy. They're affecting our religious systems. They're saying there's only one way to salvation. And we don't like that because the way that we believe, we can worship anything we want. We can do anything we want. 
We've made God in our own image, and they say that there's a God that made us in his image, and we are to repent and believe in him. And so Paul's thankful for them because in the midst of this situation, they're growing, their faith is deepening, and their love for one another is growing. They've not become selfish while they've experienced suffering. They've actually become selfless. They've started to consider each other. And Paul ends up boasting about them because they had suffered with patience and endurance. I was reading 1 Corinthians this week, and uh, one of the things that 1 Corinthians 13 says is that love is patient. And I tell you what, if you have started to be patient in your life, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit. I think most of us probably struggle with patience um, because it's one of those things that it takes me getting rid of my own desire for things to be done in a certain amount of time. Being patient is something that has to, it takes strength, and, and they're enduring. So he's boasting about them because they're enduring in persecution. And they're doing all of this because they not only heard Paul's testimony, but they believed in it. They believed in the Jesus that he proclaimed. So in chapter 2, Paul reminds them where their hope should be. Their hope should be in Jesus. So the reality is, this church has been planted, they're experiencing suffering and persecution. And so Jesus, when he was there with them for, or excuse me, Paul, when he was there for three weeks, taught them about the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Because their lives were so hectic and chaotic and hopeless, and, and they were experiencing persecution to the point where they might be thrown in jail or put to death. They couldn't hope in their circumstances. Their circumstances were crummy. And so Paul goes, hey, I want to tell you about something. Jesus is going to return. He's going to come for his people. And at that time, he's going to set all things right. Everything that you've experienced that you know in your own mind is unfair. It's uncomfortable. It's, you know, guess what? God's going to set it right. And in chapter two, he breaks down the fact that Jesus will return and he will set all things right. God will judge our enemies as believers. He will judge them as if they are his own enemies. And he's going to judge them because of their rejecting him. When, God, when people reject God, they're going to be against God's purposes and his people. And then he reveals to them, reminds them really, that Jesus' return will be at an appointed time. Because what, here's what happened. Paul planted the church. He left after three weeks. He went to plant other churches. And in that time, they got discouraged. And so Paul wrote them a letter, 1 Thessalonians. And then after that letter, about three months later, somebody wrote a letter, signed Paul's name to it, and said, you know what? You guys missed out. Jesus already came back and you guys missed it. The thing you were hoping in, the thing that was going to get you through your circumstances, the light at the end of the tunnel that I told you about, well, you missed it. Sorry. That would shake you, right? Uh, if, you know, the, the people that were following Jesus himself, when he was put to death, they all scattered. This guy we were following, he said he was going to deliver us. And then he got killed. And so they went back to what they were doing. Well, Paul didn't want them to be so discouraged that they backed up and started, you know, ah, I guess we're not going to do this Jesus thing anymore. So he wrote a second letter to combat the letter that was sent in between the two letters 
that lied and said that the, your hope is in vain. Jesus is not worthy of your trust. And Paul wrote this third letter to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I didn't write that. I did not write that letter, reject it. And so he reminds them that persecution and suffering, even though, because from the first letter to the second time, letter, it didn't go away, it got worse. Their culture decided even more so to persecute them because they were flourishing. They said, well, you know, if, you, if in your lawn, if you got weeds, and you're one of those, like, get rid of the weeds guys, or even worse, moles. Moles are in your lawn, and you're trying to get rid of them. And you put out all the stuff, and it doesn't work, and there actually seems to be more moles. What do you do? You go hardcore on it. You go, you know, Caddyshack. You start getting the dynamite. I knew you guys this type of humor. Bill Murray, all right, I'll have to remember that. So um, he gets out the, you know, you, you get out the dynamite. Well, Satan's no different. If we grow in our faith, we start, you know, really digging into God's word. If we really start trying to worship him with our life and use the things he's given, that God's given us to pursue the kingdom of God and live for that hope, Satan's going to send out the dynamite. He's going to start attacking you in ways that he knows he can get you for me it's my health i am a baby they call talk about dad flu or dad sickness i'm that guy you know i saw the video on facebook where the the mom's still doing laundry and she's taking care of the kids and then you see the dad he comes downstairs like he just got shot up you know he's like oh gosh he's got the same sickness but he can't take it i'm that guy all it takes is a little bit of sickness and i get discouraged and i go back to my natural rather than focusing in on my relationship with the Lord and, and trusting Him in those things. And God allowed me to get sick at the, at the beginning of last week, and, and it caused me to, to have all these discouragements. And, and in that, I dug deeper in His Word and actually found that I had joy in the midst of being sick. I had joy, and I had contentment. I knew that God was in control. Then in the middle of the sickness, it would, call, it would force me to be so weak, I'd actually take some rest and spend some time praying. And so all that said is their persecution and their suffering has intensified because they've grown in their faith. And so Paul's writing this letter to stir them up. And it's interesting because this is not uncommon. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter had to do the same thing. He wrote to the Jewish diaspora. This was the group of Jews that believed in Jesus for salvation at Pentecost. And from that point on, it got harder for them. Persecution arose. Rome started persecuting. And so they started scattering. But when they scattered, they took their faith with them wherever they went. But Peter was still trying to reach out to them and invest in them and encourage them. And so there's all these letters. James is one of them that was written to the Jewish dispersion. Uh, think of the word diaspora, this group of people that's been spread out, and think about one of those dandelions with the, the paratroopers on it, the little white, you know, seeds that everybody hates, and, and little kids pick them up, and they go, well, the winds of persecution always scatter believers, but the scattered believers still are seeds, and so Peter writes to them in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he says this to them, Beloved, those who are loved by God, you're still loved even though you're being persecuted. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second letter in which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. 
See, Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians to remind them about what he has already taught them. We do this for our kids, right? We remind them things over. Moms do it probably more than dads do. But the idea is that in both which I stir up your pure minds by the way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the prophets and the, or excuse me, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus said he's going to come back. Where is he? And many of you might have people in your lives that if you tried to witness to them and you said, well, Jesus is coming back and we're accountable to him, he's going to sit on the throne, they'd go, well, that's 2,000 years ago. Where has he been? Maybe that promise wasn't a good promise. Maybe he lied. And so our hearts would go, well, you know, logically, you're right. He promised people that are now dead. Where's the hope in that? But then he says, for this, verse 5, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. In other words, the creation like we have it now, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for the fire of judgment, the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Talking about the flood. People scoffed in that day too. It, the message from Noah was, hey, if you repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, I'm going to judge mankind. I'm going to send a flood. Noah built a boat. So Noah built a boat for a hundred years. The whole time, him building that boat was a testimony that God's judgment is coming. Now, they didn't know what rain was because it didn't rain then. They didn't know what a flood was because they'd never experienced one. But God told them, look, you're going to be judged. Noah built a boat. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness. All you had to do to be saved from the flood, God's wrath, was get on the boat. People were too dumb to do it. And I say that kind of half-heartedly, but the animals, by God's command, got on the boat to be preserved for further generations. Men laughed. They said, that is foolish. Who's ever heard of a flood? It's been a hundred years since you started building this boat, Noah. What is your problem? Why are you spending all your time, your effort, your energy to be saved from something we don't even know if it's going to come? And Noah said, if God's going to do it, if he said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Get on the boat. I'm, I'm begging you. And no one did. They continued doing what they always did. Now, is that what's happening today? Jesus is the boat. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Not because they're lovely. Not because we're lovely, but because he loves us. He wants to warn us. God's wrath is coming. All you have to do is get on the boat. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. Jesus has already been built. The boat's already there. We just got to get on. But men will say that that's not the case. They willfully forget. They've decided to say, you know what? There was never a flood. 
We had polar ice caps. Uh, the Grand Canyon came because of erosion, you know, and, and we were standing there. Kelly and I went to Arizona for our honeymoon, and <clears throat> she was raised in church, but we're sitting there reading this little panel in the museum right next to the Grand Canyon that says, for 100 to 300 million years ago that this thing was made. Now, first of all, 100 to 300 million years, they're not very sure of this number, right? If I said I was, you know, how old are you, Mike? Well, I'm, I'm not sure when I was born because I, I don't remember things from back then, but I, anywhere between 30 and 80. That's a huge gap, right? And that's a small one in compared to 200 million years. And they always change the numbers. But we look at the Grand Canyon and my wife goes, you really think it's that old? I go, no. And she goes, why not? I said, the Bible the Bible tells me so. And she said, but look how deep it is. I mean, erosion. Look at all the layers. And I go, Kelly, the Mississippi River is bigger than the Colorado River. How deep is it? Because of erosion. And she goes, well, it's not very deep. I go, <laughs> exactly. We willfully, scientists have decided that's not even on the table anymore. So we have to come up with another explanation rather than just going, you know, Maybe what the Bible says is true. And what they're finding through artifacts, through digs everywhere, is that everything that's in the Bible can be proven by looking at the world that we live in. And so they, they willfully forget. Verse 8 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He doesn't make promises haphazardly. I've done that with my own children, but God does not. He is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is patient. He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the question might come up, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? I think one of the reasons is, He's still giving opportunity for people to repent and be saved. That's why we're still here, so that we can share the message of the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and so that others can have the same hope that we have. So where should their hope be? And I would submit to you it's in the promises of God. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Paul, in light of all that he has said, he challenges them to stand fast in the faith. Culture's not going to agree with you. They're not going to. The school system's not even going to teach in history about Jesus. They're not. Whether you've got godly people in there or not, the world is running things. We must stand fast in the truth. But before he says that in verse 15, he reminds them that their foundation is Christ. Your foundation should be in Christ. So let's go through that. <clears throat> he says there in verse 13 and 14 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren beloved by the Lord, that's how he addresses them. Because, from, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel 
for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says three things that I'm going to point out. Beloved, don't overlook this word. This word in scripture is the word that a man uses to speak to his wife. Beloved. And it's not like the 15 years into marriage, beloved. It's the goo-goo-ga-ga phase in the beginning where you just want to go, oh my gosh, get, get out of here. You know, write, it, write Hallmark cards or something. Good grief. But beloved, is a, it's an endearing term. It's that first love. It's when, you know, your kids, your son starts dating somebody and all of a sudden it's her and she and, you know, it's just, ugh. You know, but it's good because that kind of love is the love of God. It's a gushy love. It's a sacrificing love. It's the love that my wife reminded me last night. One of the things I did, and it may not sound romantic to you, but my wife never really saw herself as worth being spent on. So I didn't have to do much to show the gushy love. She had, a, some of you guys might have the same problem, your fingers crack in the wintertime. Her fingers crack, like instant, as soon as it gets cold out, cracks. And so when we were dating, apparently one of the great things I did was I took her to Walgreens. I said, well, let's, let's do something about it. Why haven't we gotten anything for this? We got Neosporin and Band-Aids. I didn't get no, you know, I got the name brand. <laughs> the one that says Neosporin on the bottle. I don't know that we do that anymore. I th I sh back then, I should have said, hey, I'm doing this now because when we have kids, we ain't doing that. <laughs> we're, get we're not getting the name brand. But that's what, we, that's what love does. Love buys name brand when it doesn't really even matter, you know? Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God, right? God could have sent anybody to die for our sins. He sent His Son. He sent name brand. He didn't send somebody else's Son. He sent His only one and His. He sacrificed. And so you are loved, beloved. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrated His love towards us while we were yet sinners. That's when Christ died, proving that we couldn't have done anything to earn his love. He did it before we repented. He did it knowing that many would reject it. Then he says, you've been chosen by God. Now, why is this important? There are groups that spend tons of time focusing on the fact that God chooses people. And they, they even go to the, the nth degree and they say, well, which means God chooses people not to be saved. But what the Bible teaches is that God chose us. He chose us for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through believing in His Word. So He's chosen us. But what I want to point out to you is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, I'm going to turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, I want to point out when He chose you. Chapter 1, verse 4 says this. <clears throat> he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose you before He created the earth. He chose you before anyone had ever been created or born. Again, pointing out the fact that He did not choose us based on any preferences. He didn't choose us based on our worthiness. He didn't choose any of us based on what 
anything we had to offer because we didn't exist when he chose us. Can't earn his love. You ever heard that song by the Beatles? Can't buy me love? You can't earn God's love. So you are loved by God, you are chosen by God, and you are being sanctified by God. What is sanctification? It's preparation. God has chosen us, and he's specially preparing us for his purpose and his use. Ephesians chapter 2, the same book we just looked at. Verse 8, he says, By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. It's a gift. It's not of works, lest anyone would boast about it. Hey, look what I did. No Christian can say, hey, look what I did. But then he says, we are his workmanship. We were made by him, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Picture your life as have already been lived. Jesus is 100 yards ahead of us. He's really way further ahead, right? But every step we're supposed to take, he's already prepared things that we can do along the way, and he prepared them ahead of time. So he's setting us apart by sanctification of the Spirit. He's cleansing us. He's convicting of us of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. That conviction is something that he wants to give us so that he can warn us away from things that will hurt us. And then by belief in his word. And I, I want to focus in on both of those, but I want to focus on the second one. We have to read his word, but we also have to believe it. Do you believe what God's word says? Because we're going to look at a session here where uh, there were a group of people that didn't believe what he said. But he's reminding them again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, he's already told them this. He who calls you faithful will also do it. He who calls you to be a believer, he who calls you and is sanctifying you, and he's given you these things to do, he's going to be faithful to do it. That makes sense. He's going to empower you to do the things that he gives you to do. And then in verse 15, he says this. Verse 15. Therefore, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Therefore, it's a huge word in the Bible, and I think we need to focus more in on it than we normally do. Therefore, says, with all these things in mind, with what things in mind? Well, you're loved, you're chosen by God, and you're being set apart for his purposes. And he's going to do it all. Therefore, here's our part. We always like, you know, we're, we're Missourians. We're southeast, you know, we're, we're Bible Belt people. We're in the Midwest. We, we like to do, right? Well, before we can do anything, we have to know who we are. And once we know who we are, out of that comes what we do. In light of the fact that we're loved, in light of the fact that we were chosen by God, in light of the fact that he's cleansing us and purifying our lives, He says, therefore, with that in mind, stand fast in the truth. Hold on to the truth and be established by the truth. 
Stand in Christ. So we are, he says, stand fast in the truth that we taught you in our words when we were with you, and stand fast in the truths that we wrote in our letters to you. Not anybody else's letters, ours. And then he says, hold on to these truths. What we taught you in person, what we taught you in our letters, hold on to them. You know, uh, many times couples in young relationships write notes to each other. Their promises or thoughts that they had and wives and, well, they'll hold on to them. They'll keep them in a shoebox. They won't let any of them go because they hold those words dear. We are the bride of Christ. How many of us take what God has said to us, write it down on a piece of paper and throw it in a shoebox like we would for our spouse? God has said this to me and he's promised it. I'm holding on to it. Now, no doubt, there are promises that we are like, yes, I'm loved by God. Yes, I'm chosen by God. But not many of us in that box would write down, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. That's also a promise. We're not greater than our Savior who suffered. But my point is, we have to know what God has said, we have to believe what God has said, and we have to remember what God has said. Hold on to it. So that when things go awry, we can remember, I know the situation, the circumstances look like this, but God has said this. You know, this week we've experienced circumstances that have shaken a lot of us up, right? Many of you have kids in school. Are you working school? And what happened? The sanctity, the safeness of a school has been violated. And I do not want to make light of that. There are families that have lost their children. And so we start to think about our own kids and we start to go, okay, what are we going to do about this? And we got to fix it. What's going to fix it? So I've watched ideas and I, I'm perusing through Facebook too because I, these things shake me up just like everybody else. And I have to start questioning, what does my faith say? How should I interact? How should I react to these circumstances? Should I push for laws? Now we make it about our rights, but we also make it about us being able to protect. And some of the people say, well, you can't get rid of the Second Amendment, and, you know, okay, and I'm, I'm with them. And there are some people that say we need to make more strict laws. And because of the people I know in the school district and because my own kids will be there, I, I want more laws. But I also know something that Scripture teaches, which is laws can never regulate the heart. And murder doesn't come from, uh, it comes from the heart. And so I also agree with the people that say, well, Cain killed Abel with a stone, so you can take away guns, but somebody's going to bring a rock or a knife or, you know, all these other things. And I'm weighing all these things in, but I'm looking at them through the eyes of God and I'm saying, our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in the right president. Our hope is not in the right rules. Because those rules, you can make a million of them. All they do is restrict the people that obey them. And even in those cases, we're kind of self-righteous. I've never murdered anybody. No, but Jesus said murder is hate. If you've ever hated somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. So what are we going to do about the heart issue? Stop trying to be saved by laws. Stop trying to be saved by the government. It's an idol. 
Idols are forbidden. Our hope has to be in Christ. So I heard an educator say this this week about this particular topic. When am I going to feel safe to go back to school and send my kids back to school? And my answer would be, you should have never felt safe in the first place. This world is unsafe. So we can recluse and go into a cave and ignore it all. Or we can look at the unsafeness of the world we live in and say, Jesus, come back. Jesus, protect my family today. If there's anything that these situations should cause you to do, pray with your kids before they go to school. One of the movies I want to watch is Actually, I Am Not Ashamed. And it was about the Columbine shooting, the little girl that shared her faith. And because of it, she was killed as part of one of these shootings. And her family, no doubt, has experienced more suffering than I've ever imagined. But our Savior came here, was completely innocent, knowing full and well that we were going to kill him. And he did it anyway because he came to redeem us. And redeem, redemption meant death for him. So you're going to be afraid. And in those moments, say, Lord, I'm afraid. Help me. Lord, I believe that if I die, I'm going to heaven. I'm just not ready to go yet, right? But if our hope is in Christ, if our hope is in the kingdom of God that will last for eternity, then we will live for that hope. So I know that I'm going over and I'm sorry, but I needed to talk about that. Luke chapter 24, and we'll close after this passage. Luke chapter 24. couple disciples were walking and Jesus has just been crucified the man that they placed their hope in and as they were walking uh, their circumstances had scared the tar out of them and so they're talking about it that's what we do we're scared what we do we talk we talk to each other we talk to our spouses we talk to our kids we we talk it until we can't stand talking about it anymore instead of praying, right? Many times, I, I'm guilty. But Luke chapter 24, these men are doing the same thing. They're walking to Emmaus. It says, Behold, two of the, them, the disciples, were traveling to Emmaus, and it's seven miles from Jerusalem. They talked together of these things which had happened. They were talking about Jesus being put to death. They, their whole life, the, everything that they had banked on had been taken from them. So it was while they conversed and they reasoned that Jesus drew near and went with them. This is the resurrected Jesus. They're talking about him, and he shows up in the conversation. So it was while they conversed and reasoned, Jesus drew near. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know it was him. And he said to them, what are you guys talking about? What kind of conversation is this that you have, have with one another as you walk and are sad and one of whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and you don't know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, Well, what things? Now Jesus knew what things, but he, he wanted to hear what they thought about them. He wanted to know where they were. He met them where they were at, in their distress, in their confusion, in their circumstances. And so they said to him, and he listened, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth 
who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping, look at this, what they were hoping in, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We'd no longer be subject to Rome. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So they have doubt. He died. His body's gone. I don't know that they believe that he resurrected. They're, they're thinking somebody stole his body. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? So he hears what they say, and then the word of God, which is profitable, Paul writes to Timothy for instruction, for correction, for rebuke, for strengthening. He says this, you're foolish. You're ignorant is what he's, he's not being mean. He's just saying you're ignorant. You're not understanding what took place here. And then he says, you're slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? He's referring them back to the scriptures that they knew. Saying, you know what the scriptures said? You know what Isaiah chapter 53 says? Even though they didn't have chapters. You know what it says? That he was bruised for our transgressions. That he was beaten for us. That he came to redeem Israel, the people, not the nation government. He came to deal with the sin problem. He came to be the lamb that was slain. And as he tells them this, verse 27 says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He revealed himself in the word of God and said, how come you, you need to focus on this promise and this promise and this promise that you had kind of written off because you didn't know what they meant? These are the things that I fulfilled. Then they drew near to the village, verse 28 says, where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, why don't you stay with us, for it's evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. He was speaking to them. They didn't know it was Jesus. Then they saw what he did, and all of a sudden it made sense. And at the moment they noticed him, he vanished from their sight, and they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So notice their response to this. They're talking about their circumstances. Jesus shows up. They were shaken. He meets them in their conversation. They were thinking and talking. And Jesus met them. He explained to them. He corrected their wrong thinking. Then he broke bread and gave thanks for it, providing the meal for them. And then he vanished. Why did he do that? One word, comfort. He wanted to console them. They lost him. And he showed up to say, I'm not gone. It's not over. So 
Jesus questioned what they believed. He listened to them. He corrected them because he loves them. He revealed himself to them in word and in deed. And then they saw Jesus for who he really is. And therefore, in light of that, look what they do. Verse 33, they rose up at that very hour. They stopped what they were doing. I don't think they even had the meal. They got up and they went back the seven miles. They returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together and they said this, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. They got up and they went and told others. Why? To comfort them because they were upset too. So, we're not going to finish. We're not going to go to chapter 3, but I, I just want to point out to you these things. Life is going to shake you. I'm sure it already has in your guys' lives many times more than it has mine. But life will shake you. Life will present problems. Don't go back to your natural state to deal with them. Talk about them, yes. Pray about them, yes. Expect Jesus to show up and to help and comfort you. And look for his comfort. And sometimes it won't be like he's going to show up to, to you in, a, in the form of a person. Sometimes it's just going to be you're, you're at the end of yourself. You don't know how to deal with it. Check out the word. Go, go wherever you are already reading in the word. Say, Lord, I am at my wit's end. Please help. It's that simple. And then read his word and look for him to answer you. He desires that more than anything, to be present in your life and to speak into your situations and to comfort you because the situation may not get any better, but he's going to strengthen you in it. So let's pray. Father God, um, thank you for this word from Paul. Thank you for his admonition, his strong uh, encouragement to these believers. To, to recognize who they are. They are beloved. They've been chosen by you. You died on the cross for them. You are making them new day by day. You're doing that for us too. We are loved. We've been chosen by you. You are transforming our lives by the renewing of our minds as we submit ourselves to your word. And so in light of that, Lord, um, help us to dig deep, to have roots that are deep, to have our foundation established on the word of Christ. Not one jot, not one tittle will be uh, in vain because it's all going to be fulfilled in your timing. But Father, in the midst of that, our circumstances often shake us. So when they shake us, reveal to us the places, the things that we've hoped in that are not necessarily things that you've said we can hope in. Help us to hope in the finished work of Christ. Help us to stand fast. Help us to hold fast. Help us to encourage each other when we get shaken. Lord, help us to be aware of how each other are doing so that when one of us is shaken, we can strengthen and encourage and pray for that person. Lord, we need each other. We need you. You are the cornerstone. Your words are worthy of our trust. Help us to get to know them. Help us to embrace them. 
And when things seem completely awry, help us to trust them to be true. That's the faith part. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. I do pray for this family, these families that have lost their children. I do pray for the teachers. Lord, I pray for the school in Florida and the many others who have experienced these tragedies. Help us, Lord. Help us to share our faith with those that are not promised tomorrow. Not one of us is. If they're going to go down, Lord, help them to know Jesus first. But in the midst of that, I do pray for wisdom for our leaders, for our school superintendents, for school boards, for resource officers, for students, for teachers to be equipped to be ready in case, to be willing as teachers to lay their lives down. Lord, thank you for teachers that do that. But in the midst of that, if those systems don't work, we have hope beyond that. We have Jesus. So Father, help us to do all that we can to stand fast, to hold firm, but to know ultimately it's all in your hands. To trust you to not be shaken, um, to be willing to, to be calm even though things in this life are not safe. Help us to trust our families to you. Help us to trust them practically daily to pray over them before we leave. You're our God, so we trust you no matter what. We pray for protection, but we also know that in this life we will experience trials. And so, we just ask, Lord, would you be glorified in them? If we're going to experience them, be glorified in them. In Jesus' name, amen.